Well, let's close in prayer. (laughs) (laughs) Pastor Jacob, thank you. I was moved to hear your story, how God's grace came intergenerationally and reflecting on a similar heritage in my family and some of you. And it's just glorious to think about what God might do in the coming generations. That when you kids hear the gospel from your parents and your grandparents, that someday you can share the gospel with your children and your grandchildren. Hard to believe, isn't it? But if the Lord doesn't come back real soon, that might just well happen in your life. Let me pray for us again, okay? Heavenly Father, it's such a delight to be here with your people, to read your word, to be impacted by your spirit, applying your word to our lives. And Lord, I pray again that you would work powerfully in our lives this morning, that we might take up the baton of the gospel, run well with it, and pass it on faithfully to the coming generations in a way that can be passed on to yet other generations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it is good to be with you here at Covenant of Grace. Uh, I was teasing yesterday that when Bert initially asked me if I would be willing to come, I said, do I have to pray about this? <laughs> we already love Covenant of Grace Church, and we're just delighted to be in the same family of churches. We love Sovereign Grace Churches and, and uh, the grace, the gospel that is not only preached, taught, believed, but lived out that the gospel gets traction in the lives of churches. And and we see that here at Covenant of Grace. We see that in our family of churches. So it's a delight to be here with you. I want to invite you to come with me to Rome. And if you've seen photos, or maybe you've even been to Rome, picture yourself with the Colosseum to your back, and you're walking through the famous forum with all of the monuments of uh, conquering generals and various Caesars. But we step off of the forum just a little ways, and we see some stone stairs descending into a dungeon. And so we make those stairs part of our journey, and we descend into the Mamertine prison, and as we go down into this dungeon-like cell, our eyes gradually adjust, and we see sitting down there in that cell an older man, probably in his 60s, and he's bent over a table, a stone table in the middle of the room, and we notice he's shivering. It's damp, it's cold. And he wishes he had his cloak. Sadly, he's chained like a criminal to that stone table, even though, in our estimation, he hasn't done anything wrong. And he's lonely, except for his old physician friend, Luke. Everyone else was gone. Some had been sent away on missions trips, but others had just plain abandoned him. And as we stand there anonymously in that dim cell, we realize that many of this man's contemporaries would have considered his life at this point such a tragedy. What a wasted life. That this man in his 60s, when he was a young man in his 30s, he had such a promising career ahead of him. He was one of the up-and-coming rabbis, well-trained, well-respected, clearly, a promising future ahead of him. But somehow he'd get gotten caught up, he'd, he'd gotten obsessed with this Jesus of Nazareth. 
And he'd thrown away his promising career and become a traveling preacher for this teacher from Nazareth. And where did it get him? Now he's sitting here on death row. What a wasted life. And as we stand there looking at this man, bent over that table, we notice he's writing something. He's actually writing a last letter. He knows he's about to be executed in the near future. And so he's writing a last letter to his son in the faith, a younger man named Timothy. Don't you wish you could look over his shoulder? Don't you wish you could look over his shoulder to see what he's writing to his son in the faith, even as he himself awaits his execution? Is he writing a letter of complaint? Is he saying, son, see what you can do to get me out of here? I mean, this is a horrible place for a man of my renown. This is a horrible place for a man of my reputation, my training, my education. Pull some strings, talk to some people, do what you have to do, but get me out of here. Is that what he's writing? Or is he writing his son in the faith to somehow warn him? Is he saying, son, don't let happen to you what's happening to me. Son, go find a place that's safe to live. Buy a home, raise a family, live a comfortable life. Don't you wonder what he's writing? Well, friends, we don't have to wonder <laughs> because we have copies of that letter. You have one in front of you right now. Join me, please, in the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy. And as you turn to this last letter from the Apostle Paul, let me ask you, what would you write to your son, your daughter? What would you write to your grandson, your granddaughter, if you knew it was your last letter? As we walk through this morning, we're actually going to dip into this letter in several places. As we dip into the letter of 2 Timothy, we're going to notice that it focuses very clearly on the gospel message. The Apostle Paul is writing a passionate letter to Timothy regarding his responsibilities toward the gospel. And as we reflect on Timothy's charge, Timothy's responsibilities regarding the gospel, we're going to slow down and we're going to consider what our responsibility is as part of the gospel. And as Pastor Jacob already intimated, we're going to think of this this morning as a baton. So if you think of the gospel as a baton, someone handed it to you to one point, if you're here today as a believer, someone passed that baton on to you. You're running your lap, you're running your life, hanging on to that baton. And we are all responsible as we run our lap to hand that baton on to the coming generation, are we not? So keep that picture in your mind as I tell you where we're going this morning. We're going to talk about Timothy's charge to remember how he got the baton. So Paul's going to remind him, think about how you got the baton, Timothy. He's going to challenge Timothy, hang on to the baton. <laughs> Guard the good deposit is the way he says it. But then thirdly, very importantly, Timothy, you pass that baton on. You pass it on to the coming generations. So to get a feel for where we're going, join me as I read aloud the first 14 verses of Paul's last letter. 
the word of God says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, are we listening? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Before we go any farther, we should clarify, what are we talking about? What is the gospel? Well, look at verse 8. Paul calls it the testimony about our Lord. The gospel necessarily focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a Christless message. I hear people saying sometimes, well-meaning people, but unfamiliar with the truth of the gospel, saying things like, found religion. Or I hear people saying things like, yeah, I need to get back to church. <laughs> I need to leave a better life. I need to turn over a new leaf. And you hear people using all this sentimental religious terminology about somehow changing in life. And yet that's not the gospel, is it? The gospel focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the apostle says in verse 9, who saved us. The gospel about Jesus Christ is about a rescue mission, isn't it? It's about a rescue mission when Jesus Christ came to rescue us, save us from our sins against God and made us in the eternal penalty of condemnation and hell solved in Jesus Christ. The way I like to explain it to our grandchildren is this. Jesus Christ lived the life I should have lived. I lived a sinful life, a life of rebellion against the God who made me. 
And I couldn't undo that. But Jesus came and he lived the perfect life of obedience. He lived the life I should have lived. He fulfilled all of God's law. And then he not only lived the life I should have lived, but he died the death I should have died. That I deserve to die eternally in hell because of my rebellion. And yet Jesus Christ on the cross took my penalty upon himself. As the old hymn says, in my place, condemned he stood. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. This isn't because of anything I've done. Paul says in 9 and 10, not because of our works, because of his own purpose and grace. (laughs) That's the gospel message. And so Paul's explaining to us what this baton is. It's the gospel message focusing on Jesus Christ that explains his rescue mission, saving us from sin and condemnation through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so now Paul's going to challenge Timothy, son, remember how you received that baton. There was a point in Timothy's life when he received that baton from those who preceded him. Now, it's fascinating in Timothy's case who he received that baton from. Did you catch that as I read these first 14 verses? Who did he receive the baton from? His grandmother and mother. Isn't that precious? Now, as nearly as we can tell from the book of Acts, as well as the letters to Timothy, uh, Timothy's dad was not a believer. He was a Greek, um, a Gentile. But in God's gracious providence... God put Timothy in a home with a godly mother and grandmother. And Paul says in chapter 3 of this letter, he says, remember, Timothy, how from the time you were a little boy, from the time you were like a toddler, you heard the gospel from the Bible. You were taught the scriptures that explained to you how to be right in salvation through Jesus Christ. By the way, just so we appreciate Timothy's testimony. What Bible did Lois and Eunice have to work with? The Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. We forget that sometimes, that these two dear ladies, Grandma Lois, Mother Eunice, they knew their Bible. They knew their Old Testament, we call it. And they knew that that Old Testament pointed people to the coming Messiah. And they knew that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all those prophecies, all those foreshadowings, all those types, that it all culminated in none other than Jesus Christ the anointed. And they explained that to Timothy the way some of you young children are hearing it from your parents and your grandparents. Timothy heard it from his mother and his grandmother. Sounds like... Pastor Jacob had a Timothy testimony, and so do I, that I heard the gospel from my mom and dad, who heard it from their parents, who heard it from their parents. Not everyone has that testimony. Some are more like Paul's testimony, getting saved in adulthood, but some of us have Timothy testimonies. And by the way, if you feel like, well, my testimony doesn't have the razzmatazz of people with Paul testimonies, <laughs> you know, getting saved, you know, as a drug addict at 25 or something. I wish I had a testimony like that. No, you don't. <laughs> be thankful if you have a Timothy testimony that you were blessed to be preserved from sins that you surely would have committed had he not rescued you young. And and we celebrate God's kindness to those of us whom he saved as children. 
through the testimony many times of our parents and our grandparents. That was Timothy's story. He had a spiritual mentor as a teenager, too. If you read Acts 16, it's fascinating. Paul, on his missionary journey, came to this town of Lystra. And, and I'm reading between the lines here, and I confess that openly. Um, but uh, it's, it says in the, the book of Acts, in chapter 16, that when Paul came to Lystra, some of the older men in the church said, in essence, Paul, you need to meet this young man in our church. There's this, teenage, this, there's this teenage guy in our church that's been discipled by his mother and his grandmother. And this young man loves the Lord. He loves the gospel of Jesus Christ. He cares about people. And Paul got to know this young teenage boy. And he said, I would like him to go with me on the rest of this missionary journey. And that began about a 30-year discipleship of the older man, Paul, to the younger man, Timothy. And so Paul would have been one of those mentors in his life too. So Timothy had the advantage of receiving that baton from a godly grandmother, Lois, and mother, Eunice, and he had a spiritual mentor in the apostle Paul. It all came through the teaching of God's word. How have you received the gospel baton? If you're here today as a believer, if you're listening online as a believer, how did you receive the gospel baton? I wish we had time this morning to just open it up and to hear everyone's testimonies. But my hunch is that a number of us heard the gospel, we received the gospel baton from a family member. Let me just do this. If that's your situation, as it is mine, if you say, I heard the gospel from a family member, would you just raise your hand, no matter what age you are here, children as well. Yeah, I would say a little over half here at Covenant of Grace, more than half of you heard the gospel from a family member. Now, if I would live another 20 years, well, maybe, <laughs> and I were to come back and ask the same question, I wouldn't be surprised if that percentage goes up because even the children growing up here are going to be passing the gospel baton on to the next generation. Isn't that wonderful to think about? So Timothy had received the gospel baton from his mother, his grandmother, his mentor, Paul, probably other people in the church in Lystra. And Paul says, Timothy, remember that. Remember how you received the gospel baton. And now Timothy guarded. Did you notice that in verse 14? He says, right at the end of verse 14, he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And if you read, if you read Paul's letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, you're going to see that phrase several times when he calls it the good deposit. We might think of a word in our American English, something like guard the treasure, Guard that valuable thing, this good deposit. You had that treasure placed in your hands before you started running your race. As you began your, your lap, Timothy, someone placed a treasure in your hands, the treasure of the gospel. It's of great value. Now guard it. Don't, don't throw it away as if it's somehow worthless. Don't be careless with the gospel and just drop it. Don't let someone grab it out of your hands, Timothy. Guard the good deposit. And if you're here today and you love Jesus Christ, you love his gospel, and you think, why would I ever chuck the gospel? Why would I ever get careless about it and, and let it get watered down with false teaching? Why would I get rid of the gospel? Well, friends, you and I, if we stop and think about it, we can think of people who turn their backs on Jesus Christ people who seem to be following the Lord at some point and are no longer. You say, what happened? How does that happen? What might lead some people to say, nah, 
I, I don't want this anymore. Well, look right here in the text. Look at verse 8 again. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. Don't be ashamed. Shame is the reason some people let go of the gospel baton. You know, some of us here wrestle with the whole issue of wanting to be accepted, wanting to be approved. Maybe all of us. We tend to think of young people wrestling with peer pressure, but you know, my older friends, I don't think it's just the kids, is it? That we tend to read people and we think, oh, I wonder how they see me. I, I, wonder, I wonder what she's thinking about me. I wonder what kind of opinion he has about me. You know, I would really like to have his or her approval, so I wonder, I wonder what I could do. I wonder what I could say not to lose that, or maybe to gain that. I wonder if there's something I could do, something I could say to make myself elevated in his or her estimation. I would love to have his or her approval, acceptance, and I don't want to risk it. I mean, if I say certain things, they might be offended. If I say certain things, I might be rejected. So maybe I should be careful not to rock the boat. Maybe I should be careful not to, to push too hard. Maybe I should be careful not to risk that person's approval of me. And we live in a culture right now that is obsessed with not offending anybody, aren't we? <laughs> Well, let me just ask you kids that are here in the room, what, what, if, what if you knew your friends wouldn't like you to say there's only one way to be right with God? I mean, if you were to tell your friends there's only one way to be right with God, and your friends say, who do you think you are? I can find my own way to God. I mean, you, you find your way to God, and I'll find my way to God. Who do you think you are telling me there's only one way to God? And if you say... The Word of God says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other way. You know what? You're friends, and it's not just you kids, the adults too. You say that to people at your work, in your neighborhood, around your family reunion table. And you, you're not saying well, for me, I believe the only way to God. No, you're not saying that. You're saying the Word of God says, the Bible says that the only way we can be right with God is by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you know, you know ahead of time, there are going to be people that don't like you saying that. Don't you go pushing your religion on me. Now, if you knew ahead of time people might push back on that, what would you do with the gospel message? Well, maybe I'll just keep it to myself. You know, they tell me religion's a private thing, isn't it? <laughs> Is it? Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't let shame control you, Timothy. Don't let shame control you. Shame about the gospel. Friends, we think we live in a dangerous era. Remember where Paul is when he's writing this letter. He's on death row 
Why was he on death row? For the sake of the gospel. He says that. That's what led him to the Mamertine prison. That's what led him to death row, was preaching, teaching, declaring the gospel of salvation through Christ alone. That's what got him there. And so he's writing this letter to his son in the faith, and he says, don't be ashamed of that son. You know, another reason some people say, I don't know if I want to hold on to the gospel of Ton anymore, is just feeling alone. And I read 2 Timothy, and I try to put myself in this man who was about my age at that point, and I think, what would it be like to be separated from family, from friends, rejected by just about everybody, having already put in decades of faithfulness to the Lord. I've been faithful to the Lord all these decades, and look at where it got me. I'm in this prison zone, except for my friend Luke. Everyone else is gone. Did you notice things like that in this passage? Verse 15, which we haven't read yet. Verse 15 of chapter 1 says, You are aware, Timothy, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegus, Phygelus, and Hermogenes. And then if you look ahead a little bit in chapter 4, in verse 16, he says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And rather than being embittered by that, he says, May it not be charged against them. How gracious of him. That's the gospel fruit in his life. But you realize here's this man who had been faithful with the gospel for decades, and now he's on death row, and it's so lonely. And if you were in his sandals, wouldn't you wonder, has it been worth it? Has it been worth it? Maybe I should just chuck the gospel baton, but some people do chuck the gospel baton because they don't want to be alone Or how about a third temptation to chuck the gospel baton facing opposition? You get to chapter 3. Look at verses 11, 12, 13 of chapter 3. He's writing to his son. He says, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. By the way, where was Timothy from? Lystra. Do you remember what happened to Paul Lystra? Any of you Bible readers remember what happened to Paul Lystra? He was stoned to within an inch of his death. They left him for dead. And I wonder if a teenage boy was standing watching that, a young man named Timothy. And, and Paul writes to Timothy now years later, he says, Timothy, you know what happened to me, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who, are in, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Some people chuck the gospel baton because they say, I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be rejected by people like that. I don't want to hurt. And yet Paul's saying, don't be ashamed. Guard the good deposit, Timothy. By the way, just let me, let me read that verse 12 again. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think it was John Piper that said to fellow pastors, he said, we need to be preparing God's people to suffer for the gospel. And as I look ahead, I I don't know what's going to happen ahead, but as I look ahead, I would not be surprised if here in our culture, being a Christian will get harder and harder. And I think those of us that have influence on the coming generations, especially as parents, as grandparents, as church leaders, aunts, uncles, We need to be preparing the coming generation to be ready to suffer for the gospel. 
You ever seen those Bible promise books in the spinner racks and the big box stores or maybe at, uh, what's it, Cracker Barrel? You know, you see those little spinner racks of books and uh, there's, there's usually a Bible promise book. You seen those? Next time you see one, see if you can find 2 Timothy 3.13 or 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me know if that made the cut, okay? (laughs) It sounds like a promise to me. (laughs) Are we preparing the coming generation? Paul did. He was preparing the coming generation, his son Timothy. Don't chuck the gospel baton, son. Hang on to it. Hang on to it. Be ready for persecution. And then a more internal problem we wrestle with is that craving for people to accept us, people that are wanting us to morph the gospel, to make it more acceptable, more palatable to the people. Look at chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Paul says to his son here, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You know... There is so much pressure on pastors, preachers, teachers of the gospel these days that um, to be accepted by people in our culture, to to grow our churches, you need to be careful that you don't offend people. You need to give people something that, that sells. You know, you market the gospel. We don't market the gospel. And Paul told Timothy, There's, you're going to feel pressure, Timothy. You're going to feel pressure. There's going to be people coming to you saying, Pastor Timothy, could you just, just kind of tone it down on that? I mean, you're talking way too much about sin. And, and this talk about repentance, when you say that, it makes me feel bad about myself. I don't want to feel bad about myself. Could you just tell me what a good person I am? Because if you don't, I don't think we're going to stay at the church. And you know, we're one of the bigger givers, right? You remember that, you know? And, and, and there's all this pressure, and Paul's saying, son, don't give in to that. Don't give in to that. So you can understand why Paul had to tell Timothy, don't let go of the baton. Be willing to hang on to that baton, son, even if it means suffering, even if it means you die for the gospel. And I read that, and I I read that, and I try to imagine what it must have been like for Timothy to hear that from Paul and for Paul to write that. And those of you in the room that are parents, those of us in this room who are grandparents, think about this personally. If you knew you were about to be killed for the sake of the gospel, and you're writing a last letter to your son, your daughter, your grandson, your your granddaughter, would you say, come suffer with me? Come die with me for the sake of the gospel. And friends, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. I know 
that we parents and grandparents, we want our children, we want our grandchildren to be safe. We want them to be comfortable. We want them to have a happy life. And there's such this tendency in our hearts to say, I want my children, I want my grandchildren to have a good life. What would, what would move a father? What would move a father to write a last letter to his son and say, son, come suffer with me. Come suffer with me. Son, be willing to lay down your life. What would move him to write that to his son? What would move you and me to write that to our sons, our daughters, our grandsons, our granddaughters? What, what would be in our hearts to say, come suffer with me, come die with me for the sake of the gospel? Friends, that's a value statement. That's a value statement. Paul is saying, you, we weigh things, don't we? Uh, remember going to buffets and restaurants? Remember those pre-pandemic days? And, and, and you're supposed to pick and choose, friends. You don't take everything. You know, and as you go down that buffet line, you look at, you look at the items, and you know, sometimes if it's a nice buffet, there's a lot of items. And, and, and you think, okay, I can't eat it all. And so I choose this and not that. Why do we do that? Why do we say I choose this and not that? Or, or maybe you buy a car and you buy this car and that, or not that car. Or you buy a home and you think, why did I buy that home and not that home? We work on values. We weigh things and we say this is more value to me, valuable to me than that. And so I'm going to hang on to this and chuck that. And we read this last letter from Paul and we realize what's going on here. Paul is saying, son, there is nothing, there is nothing in this world more valuable than Jesus Christ and his gospel. Not your fame, not your comfort, not your career, not your safety, not your life, son. Nothing is more valuable than Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so here's a man about to literally lose his head for the sake of the gospel. He writes a last letter to his son, not saying, avoid this path, son. Go find a good career. Go find a comfortable life. He's saying, son, don't be ashamed of the gospel, son. Don't be ashamed of it. Amen. Come suffer with me because there's no one, there's nothing this world has to offer more valuable than Jesus Christ and the message of his gospel. Hang on to the baton, son, even if hanging on to it leads to your death. So Timothy was to remember how he received the baton, to remember that people were faithful to give him that baton of the gospel. He's to run his lap, hanging on to that baton, the treasure of the gospel, never chucking it, never letting it go carelessly, never just dropping it out of fear of rejection or persecution or abandonment. Hang on to it, son. But that's not the end of the story, is it? He says, son, make sure you pass on that baton to the coming generations. And we read, for instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, 
Let me just read the first two verses of the second chapter. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men, reliable men, who will be able to teach others also. How many generations do you read or see implied in that little verse of 2 Timothy 2.2? How many generations are explicit or implicit in that? Anyone take a guess? Four, I agree. There's at least four. Paul would have been the first generation. Timothy, you heard this from me. Timothy would have been the second generation. And he's saying, Timothy, you pass that gospel baton on to a third generation, but the, the race isn't over yet. You, you entrust it to that third generation in a way that they can pass it on to the fourth generation, and the implication on is that that relay race will continue on until we hear the trumpet, until Jesus returns. There will be this ongoing relay race one generation after another. And so when I explained the gospel to our grandchildren, I sat with them just recently, and I said, you know one reason I'm doing this? It's not only because I love you, but I want to model for you what I hope by God's grace you do someday with your grandchildren. I mean, I assume I'm going to be long in heaven when that happens. But to pass the gospel baton on not only to our children, their parents, but to come alongside our, our daughters, their husbands, in passing the gospel on to yet to another generation, their children, our grandchildren. We assist in that effort as grandparents. I call us grandparents secondary disciplers. You parents that are here, you're the primary disciplers of your children. But that doesn't mean we grandparents are relegated to the sidelines to watch passively. No, we're right there on the field with you. We're in the game. And we're secondary disciplers. We're supporting you, encouraging you, helping you disciple your children for Christ. But we're doing it in a way that the children have a grip on the gospel that's so sufficient, so profound, so gripping in their own lives that they are looking forward to the day, to the day that they are parents, that they can pass it on to their kids. And someday, as the Lord tarries, their grandchildren. Paul told Timothy, pass it on, son. Make sure you get that baton into the next generation's hands. So let me just ask you, parents, grandparents, how's that going? How's that going? How's the baton passing going? I enjoyed the day yesterday. There were 20 some of us that gathered here to talk about grandparenting with grace, grandparenting in the context of the gospel. Thanks for uh, sharing that with me, you grandparents that were here. And we looked at a variety of psalms in particular. And for those of you that obviously weren't here, let me just mention a few of these. Listen to the intergenerational passing of baton. Psalm 145 verse four says, one generation will commend your works to another or a psalm that's become precious to me in the years since I became a grandfather, Psalm 78. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them for their, to their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation may know them, the children not yet born, and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. 
And we parents and grandparents, and let me just wrap in those of you that are aunts, uncles, children's teachers here at Covenant of Grace. We have the joyful, delightful responsibility of telling the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord. That we speak of his greatness, his grace. We speak of his gospel to the coming generation. We are actively engaged in an intergenerational ministry. We are actively engaged to be very intentional of getting that baton into the hands of the coming generation. Not just parents. They're the primary disciples. But yes, us grandparents too. One of my prayers is Psalm 71, verse 18. So even to old age and gray hairs. <laughs> oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Lord, if you'd be so kind to let me live long enough to see that gospel baton in the hands of my grandchildren, <laughs> that would be a delight. That's his decision. But Lord, if you would let me live long enough to see my grandchildren get a grip on the gospel. It would be a delight. So as Christ followers, my friends, we need to consider the reality that only some things are worth living for, and even fewer things are worth dying for. Let me say that again. Only some things are worth living for, and even fewer things are worth dying for. What is it that you treasure? What are you willing to give your life to? What are you willing to die for? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We want to be so passionate about Christ and his gospel that the coming generation in the Lord's gracious providence will want to follow in our steps that they will see the passionate love we have for Jesus Christ, that commitment to his gospel, that's, that that passion is attractive. That the coming generation will say, I want what my dad has. I want what my mom has. I want what my grandpa has. I want what my grandma has. A love for Jesus Christ. That my, my mom, my dad, my grandpa, my grandma, they look at Jesus Christ as more valuable than anything this world has to offer. My mom, my dad, my grandpa, my grandma, they love Jesus Christ. They see him as more valuable than everything this world has to offer. Are you feeling overwhelmed? So we should. And yet we look in this letter and we see things like in verse 8 where he says that whole profound sentence about suffering for the gospel. And then he says, do you see it at the end of verse 8? By the power of God. Look at verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Older friends, middle-aged friends, those young adults just starting to raise your families. It is overwhelming to think about passing that baton. And you say, I can't do this on my own. That's right, you can't. But if you're a Christian, you're not alone. You're not alone. The Christ has very graciously sent his Holy Spirit. And you have the power of the Holy Spirit as you parent your kids day after day, as you grandparent your kids year after year. You have the Holy Spirit empowering you 
stirring your affections for Christ, giving you words to say, giving you a life that can be fallen. Even if it means that we are martyrs for the faith. But even if we are not martyrs for the faith, Christian friends, we die daily. We die daily to the temptations of promoting ourselves, protecting ourselves. And the coming generation will see us valuing Jesus Christ more than anything else this world has to offer, more than everything else this world has to offer. Let's go back to that dungeon. Let's go back to seeing that old man writing this letter over that stone table. Was it a tragedy? Did he live a wasted life? No, and a thousand times no. Look at the end of his letter. Look at chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And we hear these words. The father completes his letter to his son. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Now, friends, that would be the oblation part of the offering. Being a Jewish man, he was saying, this is the last part of the sacrifice. The end of the sacrifice was the the, the drink offering, the oblation. He's saying, I'm at the end of the end. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering for the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Now we have no more words from the pen of the Apostle Paul, but church tradition, in this case probably pretty reliable, is that the Apostle Paul was soon after this led out of that dungeon, taken out to a road, a major road that leads into the city of Rome. And there he laid his head on a block. And as the executioner's axe came down and severed his head from his body, I believe in that instant. The Apostle Paul heard the most blessed words any human being could ever hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. Oh, this this was no wasted life. This was a life well lived for Christ and his gospel. And so, my Christian friend, are we willing to follow in those steps? Are we willing to run the race, holding on to the gospel baton, despite the temptations to shame and rejection and persecution and maybe even martyrdom? Are we ready to call our sons, our daughters, our grandsons, our granddaughters, to come suffer with us for the cause of the gospel. May God help us. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help. Help us to be radically changed in our lives as parents and grandparents. 
Lord, that we would live for you in a way that's contagious. Lord, that we would live for you in a way that calls our children, our grandchildren, nieces and nephews to come and join us to live, to suffer, and to die for your son, Jesus Christ. Enable us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.